and welcome to the Red Pill Training Podcast. We are back with Season 3 with myself, James Jowsey, Phil Mansfield and Gemma Chambers. Hello and welcome to this week's Red Pill Podcast. Um, I'm joined by the usual suspects. We have Gemma joined us. Hi both. Hey Gemma, how are you? And we have Jowsey of course. Also known as Kaiser Sose. Who? Great film, great, great film. You called us the usual suspects. I, I feel like I'm too young for that. No, no, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. apart from actual age, been too young. Yeah, great film, great film. I don't think um, we shouldn't ruin ruin it for, ruin it for anybody, should we? So, um, but if you haven't seen Usual Suspects, it's definitely top of the list. It's not Top Gun, but it's a great film. Or Dirty Dancing. Or Dirty Dancing, another great film. Um, two of the best. Two of the best. Um, right, guys. Uh, today we are talking about return to sport from injury. Um, and, of course, injury is something that is uh, dealt with by everybody, uh, any kind of athlete at any time. I don't think uh, anybody or there aren't any athletes that go through their, their sporting careers without some kind of injuries. And there's also varying injuries from, from sort of a couple of days of rest through to years out um, of different severity. And each, of course, have a different effect and uh, leave a different effect on the body. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, how do you know when your athlete is ready to go back to sport? Um, what are the criterias and the thought processes behind us as coaches and how we allow our athletes to go back to sport? When do we, as we say, push the red button to allow them to play sport or when do you allow them to go back to training and what is involved in that decision-making process? Um, so, uh, Joust, if you could start us off, mate, um, can you give us just a little bit of a, an overview of your thought processes behind injuries on the way back uh, to sport? And uh, on purpose, I'd like us to leave out specific injuries for now. We might give some good examples later on. But just in terms of the principles of, of, of return to sport, what are you thinking and what's, what's your ideas? I mean, at the time of injury, there's always something you can do. So as often with like in the initiation stage of injury, uh, one big problem is that a lot of people go into complete shutdown. So they go, right, I'm injured. I'm not training. Um, therefore, well, I'm at home on the couch uh, and everything like that. So initially the, the first, the, the beginning stage of return to sport begins as soon as you're injured. So it's working on the things that you can still be improving. Um, you can still work on the cardiovascular system. Got to find a way of doing that to keep it ticking over to help with healing, etc. So that that would be where the whole process starts from as soon as the injury's begun. Great, Jar. So I'm, I'm just going to stop you there because I think we've uh, on that journey there. I'm just going to bring Gemma in quickly. Gemma, how important is that initial? phase now it, not from a psychological point of view because i think the psychological benefits of that are, are, are obvious um purely from a musculoskeletal perspective how important is it from that initial injury phase to keep movement to keep active and to keep sort of the system yeah i think i mean obviously it's hugely important in terms of 
healing times as well. So if you think about the initial phases of healing, if you talk about an injury, you've got potentially the the bleeding phase up to what six to eight hours then you've got the inflammation stage and that can last anyway from like one to three days or a few weeks so by trying to improve your cardiovascular system keep things going then you're gonna hopefully move through those stages at a, a good rate and not sort of stick in an inflammation stage for example um so i think in terms of what you would be doing you would obviously try and promote as much healing as 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 possible and give yourself the best chance to get through those stages okay brilliant so so initial you, you athlete has, has received as sort of has an injury the injury is, is acute it's just happened and already as the coaches or the therapists we're already beginning our return to sport uh, uh strategies now just purely from a psychological standpoint i just think that that is incredible. Um, I think it would be it would be very difficult with a, a huge a sort of serious injury, which is going to take a lot of time for for recovery. Um, but in terms of certainly sort of smaller injuries, sort of three to six week injuries, having that initial mindset flipped over has an enormous impact. Plus the sort of physiological benefits that that Jim has uh, sort of outlined there. Um, Joust, what's the next phase? So positively, we've flipped it around. We've, we've, not got, we've not told the athlete they're injured. We've said to the athlete they're already, we're already trying to improve something, we're already getting back towards sport. What's the next phase? So the next phase, you can cut it out, relax yourself. <laughs> um, the next phase is basically, well, you're working on... Obviously, depends on injury dependent. Um, basically, working on as many skills as possible. Well, that joint muscle, whatever it is, we've got to return the joint back to full range of motion for the task as much as possible. Um, increase the proprioception, increase the strength of everything around there. Um, just yeah, the, the standard protocols. What what I think sometimes can can go on when you look at traditional traditional texts and things is that um there's very much like a protocol it's like three to four days is range of motion seven to ten add proprioception and like people almost as soon as they leave a previous stage they then end up, sorry as soon as they've completed a stage that stage is no longer worked on because they're into the next stage which a lot of the time when i see people that are maybe post post uh surgery and it was a considerable amount of time ago when you actually go back to the early stage of rehab like when you look at how good they are at that balance control proprioception thing it's actually still struggling um which is why they're still having problems with the injury so it's almost like we were always working on everything and it's just where our influence of what particular skill as we Obviously, the further through we go, we need to be more sport specific. So it has to be more dynamic, more stressful, et cetera. But it doesn't mean that I've left balanced proprioception range of motion behind. Perfect. So, so Gemma, um, after injury has occurred, uh, what physiological changes happen? I mean, of, of course, um, so what type of things will we be facing initially on in initial phase as, as a therapist or a coach, what type of, um, what type of uh, 
both physical symptoms but also movement-wise symptoms and range of motion symptoms will we be facing and will be will be be our challenges in that initial uh three to five days there that just just is talking to talking about so with an initial injury you're obviously going to get in the so if i even start before that we talked about the bleeding phase before um to stop that you'll get the inflammation phase so you'll have a level of inflammation within the area so if we i'm going to focus in on the knee for example if you've then got additional inflammation you're going to get that stiffness of the joint you're going to get reduced ability for muscle contraction etc um and again as i said that can last from anywhere between one day and a few weeks um you move through that phase into the sort of production of, of scar tissue so collagen is laid down and in this this can start from anywhere from 24 hours to 48 hours um but can last up to three weeks so in that period of time if you're continuing to move the joint if it's, it's obviously safe to do so we're not talking about a fracture here um you're allowing the collagen fibers to be laid down in a more uh, in a better way essentially so it's not going to be really really stiff but so you're, you're dealing with stiffness, you're dealing with inflammation, you're dealing with pain, obviously, as well. So it's trying to overcome those things so that you can still move through tissue healing. Okay, so, so Joust, going to throw that back to you then. Um, Gemma, Gemma raised a, a, an important point there about movement, um, and she, she, she sort of indicated a little bit about the 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 laying down of collagen fibers and how well that process begins and how well that process starts now of course as Gemma said we're going to leave out fractures for for the moment we will go and we will discuss fractures let's leave that now but for sort of um tissue tissue injuries um how quickly do does that movement process start from from your perspective how how soon can we be moving and and what type of movement should we be doing initially if we should be doing any at all again it it starts straight away it's just that doesn't mean that we're going in super stressful it can be as simple as you've got a hamstring in hamstring injury but we're still moving the hips so we could be foot flat on the floor and literally just doing some hip glide side to side forward and back to be promoting some some movement through the hips which will will help with the not only with the the neurological aspect of the muscle because a lot of the time that that's one of the initial issues with injury is that neurological shutdown because of the pain and injury and the inhibition that comes with that we need to re-stimulate that to be able to re-strengthen the muscle at a later stage so if we can add some neurological stimulus via the hips moving the hamstrings will will be sensing that um as we go so we're already on the step down the continuum as well as the blood flow everything like that Obviously, we have to be super, super careful with the amount of blood flow we do because, as Jim has said, with the the bleeding into the area and the inflammation, well, the inflammation is sent to the area because of the circulation. So to get good properties in there, it requires blood flow. Um, so an element of that is needed to help with the healing process, but too much is obviously then going to promote too much inflammation and therefore more pain. Um, but the other side of actually just in that hamstring example, moving the hips is we become so um, so compensated 
with our movement patterns um, by putting all our weight on the good, good or uninjured side um, that you end up then with uh, functional leg length discrepancies, um, which you see with anybody that's been on crutches for a, for a long period of time. They, when you see them walk, you can see that the hips are shifted over to the side that the good side where the, the hips were. And that's often a missed part of, rehabilitation because we're looking purely at that specific injured site injured joint and going well have i got uh knee flexor strength back etc yeah and and that is a wonderful point joust is that we have the involved side or the involved joint um but we have an enormous responsibility uh to the to the patients to ensure the integrity of all the other joints uh and the balance of all the other joints remains remains in place and there's absolutely no reason why we can't be working mobilizing loading stretching whatever it is um we've discussed the benefits of the cardiovascular system as well and i think that that's one key area that gets that gets missed uh massively on, on injuries that all the focus goes to the low back or to the knee or to the hip or to the elbow or wherever the painful site is and we forget that there's a whole other system that needs to be nurtured uh, managed, coached, um, and trained, and for a lot of the, a lot of times, um, an injury is a wonderful opportunity for athletes to improve and work on other elements of their game and other elements of their of their motion. Um, I mean, even even ACL reconstructions, you know, you can you can be initiating motion on post surgery post surgery within within three or four hours so you can already begin that that rehabilitation or that return to sport process very very early as as we've talked about um okay so so we we, we've got the sort of the from from a psychological standpoint then the initial injury is obviously quite a shock for the athlete and they'll go through a cognitive appraisal so so here in the start the athlete usually is very confused is almost sort of a little punch drunk a little disappointed and you can't necessarily take take seriously the initial reaction of the athlete just after an injury because it's a sort of wash of emotion and a wash of sort of disappointment that that needs to fade for a certain period of time so it's sort of almost that as we talked about that two to three day initial process although from a biomechanical standpoint we can begin the return to sport process the psychological process starts a little later and i think one one of the things is apparent in i think you, you guys will also be able to to back me up on that one of the things that's very apparent in psychological understanding of injuries is that the the body is often healed a long time before uh, the mind is um, and then we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute on on that with the you're talking about like the psychological acceptance like where is the i mean there's a huge issue there in itself and a like well, you should be starting to do something straight away, and you can. But psychologically, do they want to because of all those all those emotions? Like, how how do we how do you get that balance right? Because it's something that I'll I'll admit myself. Like, it you you get different athletes that just respond differently, and getting them to uh, to adapt to that is um, yeah is tough. I think the one of the interesting things about that is the 
athlete's history as well. So knowing your athlete's history, you find that um, athletes that have had similar injuries previously will have a slightly different or potentially have a slightly different thought process as to what that means as well. So if you have somebody that's previously had a shoulder problem, for example, and then develop something else similarly on the other side, they've got that previous history or previous experience to look back on and whether that was positive or negative will also affect their thoughts towards this injury. So I think their experiences are worthwhile for us knowing and sort of taking a good history and knowing your athlete will will help you with that as well. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, Gemma. I think just the I think Gemma answered your question there as well. Is that there's very few of us in our life that haven't been through some kind of coping strategy um, and physiology um, and the the brain's chemical responses aren't necessarily different from uh, uh, a breakup with a with a partner, um, the loss of a loved one an injury that this is manifested in, in, in very similar chemistry. Um, and so, and so in whatever case you have, it's, it's, it's unlikely that it's going to be the first time this, this athlete has experienced, um, psychological trauma in their lives. So going back to some of those examples and, and helping them get through in the same cope, if you know them well enough and, and the coping strategies they used, previously will help massively but also um using the same the same coping strategies that you would use for any kind of grief and, and essentially injury is a kind of grief uh, is a kind of psychological grief especially if it's during competition on the way up to competition close to a peak i think the you know that whole thing that the more you've got the more you have to lose so the better shape you're in, the better you're feeling, the better training's going, the higher you are, the, the, the things are, the, the, the greater the, the loss will be. Um, well, what's, what's often um, often sort of surprised me with athletes is that when, when it's their second or third injury, as, as Gemma says, they take it much better. And you, they're the ones who have the right to moan because it's the second or the third injury and they're the ones that could, could potentially call themselves unlucky and say, oh, why is it always me? but they tend to deal with their third injury better than they deal with their, their first injury where, where the person who's sort of in a negative spiral, um, they deal with it better than the people on, on the way up. I think that, uh, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think that the other, although the other side of it could be that if you have somebody who has had a long standing injury somewhere and then they get an, a small knock or a niggle in the same area, they might completely catastrophize that. So I think again, that's worthwhile sort of keeping in your our minds when we're we're sort of coaching. Although, like you say, classically, if they're used to having injuries, they bounce back and recover quite well, then they might sort of deal with it differently. But then you get the other types of athletes that potentially would catastrophize because their previous injury was so significant. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think, I think basically in both scenarios, what I've seen or witnessed as a coach is, is, both, is both sides of it. So someone that's repeatedly getting injured, they can then go the, yes, they know how to deal with an injury, but now they're sick of dealing with the injuries. So they can still have their wobbles and their frustrations and their annoyance, and it can still be hard to get through to them that they need to start straight away. Um, whereas, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, 
like just from experience, it, it's gone both ways for me. I was just interested to see how you um, how you guys felt and dealt with dealt with it all. So, so you've got that initial initial injury. Um, the injuries occurred. We've talked about the what happens physiologically and psychologically, um, and that we've 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 said that the main job of the coaches in this phase is to is to begin the return to sport process or begin the return to sport vernacular is in as the coach you're already talking about the process the, the looking forward the training what's going to happen um and how we're going to move forward and how we're going to get them back to sport i think what's very important at this phase of injury is that we don't make or we, we don't make promises as coaches we shouldn't really be making promises as coaches anyway um but here it's almost it's more from a physical physiological and psychological standpoint it's okay how do we get back towards sport so how does that process start then what is involved in your guys decision making um we're we're over the initial bleeding phase inflammation phase they still have pain but they're going to have pain probably for a long time we can discuss later um how much of that is also psychological versus actual um and what's involved in your so what's your decision making process now for how much how soon how quick how little um i think the key for me is finding what they can do so what level are they at? Like how much is the pain and how much is the pain inhibiting them? And respectfully working on the edge and threshold of pain as much as possible to be able to be as aggressive as possible. Like I see, say the word aggressive and it yeah sounds a bit strong, but be as advanced I say in those lower levels, working on the range of motion, but then at the same time, be be pushing that level up um, to promote a faster return to sport because there's the element of the uncontrollable within the daily life tasks, getting up and down stairs, going to the toilet, like everything like that that they're doing throughout the day. They've got to find a way of doing something and they're potentially causing pain, just rolling in bed, et cetera. So not being scared the fact that I'm doing more damage than they're potentially at risk in their day-to-day life. Um, so that's, yeah, basically finding where, where are you at? Can we, like, yes, you've got a tear in your, um, you've got a tear in your hamstring, but can you still do a single leg squat actually pain-free, for example, like depending on the degree of hamstring tear, like is there actual strength-based movements that obviously a single leg squat isn't a hundred percent force on the hamstring. So it means I'm still loading the hamstring, but I'm loading it with support from quads, glutes, adductors. So it's, it's like I say, I'm, I'm getting good function to that leg. So that would be my thought process. I have a feeling the three of us are going to have differing opinions on this one. Um, I've got the feeling we're going to, we're not going to necessarily agree here, but how much, or how much credence do we give to pain in this phase? How much, uh, Gemma, let's start with you. Um, how much are you listening to pain and how much are you being guided by pain? I think probably in the early stages, I am potentially more guided by pain. I think it will potent- uh, it depend on the person perhaps, but 
in the early stages, I'm probably slightly more guided by pain. Um, and I like what Jazzy said that you, you try and get people to do what they can do without, and I probably say without pain at this point, um, because that gives them a success. It gives them something that they can work towards and work to improve without focusing in on things that they can't do. But I would probably say within the first few weeks, probably I'm a bit more guided by pain, mainly because I think it will be, well, obviously we're concerned about what what the injury is or potentially we're concerned about that. But I also think that just increasing that cycle of provoking pain, it wouldn't necessarily be good for the athlete or patient or whoever it might be. I think that would perpetuate a problem. So I would say I try and give more success first of all and then build into that. Joust, your thoughts? Um, very similar. In fairness, quite similar to Gemma. Um, pain in the initial stage does guide it, but I'm probably not, or I'd probably say is with same, just reinforcing my previous point, really, I'm not scared to go quite high up the aggressiveness scale of movement so yeah early stage injuries should only be doing these types of movements i'm not scared to jump up a few levels um providing it's pain-free basically so i am guided by the pain i'm just quite willing to be pushing the boundary so how much do we trust um the athletes reporting of pain depends on the athlete does doesn't it i think it's quite yeah. an, it's quite an important question it was almost a, an open-ended one without that much of an answer it's more just to raise the point for everybody i think joust you've got anything to come in on that buddy yeah you've yeah it depends on the athlete <laughs> um yeah yeah obviously the different types of people you've got some that just tolerate pain very well so their level of pain is they could be doing more because they're just i don't know would you want to call it tough? Uh, is it that'd be an interesting thing to know? Is is pain tolerance where where does where does pain tolerance come from? Is that learned behaviour, or do some people just have a lessened perception of pain the same way? Um, I can't remember the condition, but just can't feel heat, for example. Yeah, I mean there are some there are some quite quite good papers i work i work quite closely with uh, an orthopedic surgeon here and i think one of the stories he one of the dinner time stories he likes to tell is the the difference in sort of degenerative knee changes and pain and that sometimes he can do a clinical assessment on on somebody with with you know reporting chronic serious amounts of pain sort of eight nine on the scale and then when when and the scans or the sort of or the operation happens or they actually have an opportunity to go in and look and I, perhaps we won't do scanning and operations today we'll do that another day um but the actual relative degeneration is, is very little um and and vice versa they see some knees that are completely torn up and beaten up and broken with very little uh, pain report which is which sort of leads me back to the point of of can we trust pain then because there will be people who will be screaming and shouting on pain um with very little injury and there will also be people who will be uh, having serious injuries who and we've both coached or we've all three coached and treated people who have who have walked uh, who have walked that tightrope of 
they're absolute, you know, they're absolutely beaten up and joints and things are hanging from each other. Yet you ask them and they sort of shrug the shoulders and give you the sort of, yeah, 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 hurts a bit. Um, and so, and so from my side, probably I'm further down the spectrum than you guys. I, I, I find pain to be a poor indicator of functional health. Um, and where possible, of course, without being reckless, where possible, of course, I, I try to look at the physiological signs and symptoms that Gemma outlined in the first, in the first part there of how much range of motion has been locked down. So I would be more worried about somebody who is completely locked down in their neck or locked down in their lower back and, and, or is frightened of certain motions and has a sort of almost a, a movement block than I would be of someone reporting massive amounts of pain. I think the body is very clever at shutting down ranges of motion and shutting down um, even from a sort of fear perspective, a psychological perspective of not wanting to do something and even asking someone to stand on, on one leg and they're not wanting to stand on the one leg. Um, and when you ask them why, interestingly enough, they often say, well, I don't really know. It just doesn't feel right. I'd be more, I'd be more inclined to listen to that than, than the pain, although they can in, in some cases be, be one and the same. Um, so I think that's, I think that's obviously needs some, ca some care does need to be taken with that. And we need to take that seriously. But I think, um, I think that, that, that we have to, as, as you guys have said, manage pain, pain very nicely. So, so guys, look, we, we're over the initial phase now. We, we've got them training, we've got them moving, we've got them going. And I know what you're not allowed to answer now is it depends on the athlete. Um, because all of this podcast depends on the athletes. And so if we need to dive into some more actual examples of your athletes or patients, then let's do that. But psychologically now, the athletes starting to, to, to drift into sort of behavioral responses and they're starting to sort of hopefully look for support and look for ways and means to get better. And their sort of determination starts to rise. They may feel a little anger in this phase and, but, but, but more importantly, they're sort of wanting to do things now. And now we start that process of them maybe trying to go too quickly. What's, what's, what are the biomechanical, structural movement um, screens, et cetera, et cetera, are you guys going to be doing to, to say, right, now we're going back into training? Do you look at phases? Do you say, is there, do you break it up into phases for them? Do you have certain checkpoints? Do you have sort of movement efficiencies where – what is what's your thought process and, and let's have some examples please um i think based off obviously ultimately it comes down to the task so there is a it depends but it's got to be task specific so if it's a um knee injury um then i've got to be able to i've got to obviously know the knee injury know my early stages but then i've got to know my end goal so when I know what my end goal is, I've got to work back from there. So I know that, um, and I think this, I've, I've actually treated some people recently with it who've had mm, cartilage surgeries, um, ACL surgeries within CrossFit. And unfortunately they've, they've gone back into competition too early. Um, and they'd almost not cleared the, um, the end test, which was actually the plyometrics and jumping and, and things like that. Whereas they kind of, it was like, Oh, well I can squat now. So I'm back in training. Um, whereas actually we've got to look beyond that. And obviously running's not, uh, it's not tested as much in CrossFit as, 
as squatting is. So therefore, yeah, oh, I can squat some back training. Um, so running was kind of overlooked from that process and and jumping, etc. So you've got to go to that absolute, well, what is the most stressful thing for this body? And then work back from there and find all my, find all my stages. So yeah, knee injury, start standing on one leg, start being able to lunge on one leg, squat on one leg, back to squatting on two legs, now fast squatting, now squatting with a impact, squatting with a weight, then take it all the way through to hopping, jumping, jumping off boxes, jumping onto boxes, jumping sideways and all directions, for example, if in that one that one case. But yeah, it's basically working from, from where they come in at what they can or can't do and building back. Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm similar to Jows, but I, I perhaps would look at the client's sort of end goal anyway. So if they are, as Jarrod just said, if they are a runner, for example, I'd try and look at that on a continuum and perhaps break that down a little bit more. So if running's the end goal, but they're struggling to single leg balance or if they're struggling to even looking further away from the joint, so potentially looking at the hip or the ankle um, and sort of break down what the the fundamentals of the movement that they want and then work down from there. So we talk about the continuum a lot, but if running's at the top of the continuum, just work down to a point that they are able to achieve well and then gradually improve and gradually progress on, on that. So I think, uh, as Joe said, being as task specific as possible, but really looking at what the athlete wants as well and what they're trying to achieve. Um, Cause I think you'll get more buy-in from that as well. I think Gemma, that's the or Jim Ranchhouse there. I think that's the the differentiator between the the good coaches and the great coaches is that process there. I think we are as a sporting community, I think we're wonderful at on couch treatment. Um I think we're wonderful at uh isolated joint assessment. Um I say we're wonderful at it. We're wonderful at doing it. It's application might need to, might leave some stuff and leave something to be desired. But, but as I say, we're very good at the sort of on couch treatment. And we're also, I think very, very good at strength and conditioning side of things. I think we're very good when a player or an athlete is in a non injured uh, state. I think where I often find, and one of the, the motivations for this podcast was where I often find was as we come from, that phase we've initially discussed of uh, injury to, okay, they're moving again and we're slowly getting them going back to sport. I find that phase is, is, is often rushed is often, um, is often poorly thought out um, and often, often goes far too, far too sort of into tick boxes and protocols where it could have a more, a better understanding as, as you both allude to there of the biomechanics of the, of the sport that we're going to. Um, Jimmy, you said it perfectly there. Look, we need to look at, if we're talking about a runner, we need to look at the biomechanics of running and we need to break that down and we need to go back to our patients and say, where are they? How far off are they from being able to perform the biomechanics of the sport? Now, if you have, of course, the argument is of how do you know where they are? But if you have videos, et cetera, et cetera, of how they were prior to it, you have the other leg, the other involved leg, the non-involved leg, sorry. We have to be better um, as a community at breaking that that gap between couch and sport down uh, and being 
more sort of uh, have even more detail in that area. Um, uh, and for me, the, the the what we started with was the, the return to sport. The positivity of training is very often um, athletes who that are rehabil have to have a rehabilitation process, which is thorough. They come back stronger. Than, than they were prior to the injury. And that's because of the development and the performance development. So in that return to sport, for me, it's as much performance as it is return to sport. But the checkpoints along the way there have to be related to the end outcome of the biomechanics of the sport. So how the sport looks in in reality. Um, and so And so what sport doesn't look like is for example, balancing on the side with one leg in the air. Uh, it doesn't look like, um, you know, like it doesn't look like Copenhagen's. It doesn't look like Nordics. It doesn't look like these things. These aren't return to sport protocols. These are couch-based initial treatments, which can give a functional reading of when athletes are allowed to train again and can give functional readings, but they're not... Uh, return to sport protocols and they should never be used as return to sport protocols they should be return to sport, sport protocols need to be better uh, sort of uh, better thought out and have more of a functional application to their sport in order for that to happen you'd almost need a to be able to follow protocols you'd almost need an entire protocol for every single sport or every single movement or every single position within each sport um, and I think as as you said that's where protocols whilst I think they keep the clinician and the patient safe if I'm thinking from a um orthopedic background um they don't take it to that next step where they're making things specific so I remember this is years ago that one of the protocols for an ACR reconstruction before you could start weight bearing without your crutches was to be able to do a single leg raise and we're sort of looking back on that now I that was a tick point and that was a, once you can do that, you can move on to the next bit. But actually there's so much more that could have been done, that could have been looked at than that, that I think that we certainly need to use the protocols when required or if required, but move away from them being the handcuffs that they have historically been. Yeah, for sure. And, and being, having some dynamism, dynamism is that a word beam dynamic dynamic that one um with the protocol like i've recently um been introduced to a footballer with a lcl complete rupture and lcl surgery and to quote the lad um actually said um they've told me they've not got an lcl protocol um so they're just going because it's so uncommon within football uh, and generally. Um, so therefore, you're just going to follow the ACL knee injury protocol, uh, but we're just going to speed it up because it's the LCL and not the ACL. Um, and that's that's kind of that being rigid with, well, even not having a structure or some some ability to adapt to, to the person. Um, we have this crazy scenario whereby as the therapist you are locked down and held in by protocol uh, and tick boxes and yet the second every single one of your box or worse still 
a percentage of your boxes are ticked, they are handed over to a strength and conditioning coach. And this is nothing against the strength and conditioning coach at all because they will just be doing their job. They're handed over to a strength and conditioning coach that says, here you go, boys. Go change direction. Go sprint. Go lift weights. Go pull up on a bar. Go do whatever. And it goes from can you tick my boxes to full sport. Yet whilst I'm ticking the boxes, I'm not allowed to take a chance. Um, and within 24 hours almost, the integration is, you know, there is an enormous difference between being in a gym environment with you, Joust, following your one leg to two leg to jumping to going onto a field, cutting, changing direction and kicking a ball or maxing a clean and jerk or even when I say maxing, even relatively heavy or hitting a bottom position of a squat quickly. Um, the there needs to be a greater congruency between the strength and conditioning coaches and the the therapists. We need to get a a, a bigger overlap and a bigger linkage between those two guys um, than we currently have. Um, and unfortunately, what we have now is we have very much a protocol tick box then you're good to go and play, which is why our re-injury rates are so high, which is why we are, uh, and I know we have a podcast coming up shortly on movement screens and the effectiveness of movement screens and understanding movement screens, but so not, don't want to take too much away from that podcast, but, but we have to do that, that middle ground better than we're doing currently. I hope that uh, my background is obviously um, NHS and I, I definitely think that people are trying to get away from using the, the protocols as completely rigid because they they aren't. That's that's never really what they were designed to be. They were designed to give help. I mean, if you think about the tendinopathy protocols for um, whatever, really, a patella tendon or Achilles tendon, they were developed from something that worked so eccentric loading of the um achilles tendon and they've that information has just been extrapolated out to apply to all tendons i mean that's a specific example but they aren't protocols aren't set in stone and they can be moved but i completely agree then you're you're left with somebody who's achieved everything within that protocol and then there's a void essentially where there just needs to be more for them and it needs to be more specific. Uh, absolutely, Gemma. Um, but unfortunately, mate, what we haven't got is we haven't got people who who are thinking uh, as you're thinking. Um, protocols are guidelines. They are there for, for the therapist to use as a guide. That's not... That's not how they're being applied, particularly in professional sport, when you're dealing with uh, um, when you're dealing with players that cost a certain amount, a, a commodity, if you like. If you, if it's obviously perhaps unfair to call a, a football player a commodity, but if an athlete being a commodity, we need to, we're talking about having millions and millions of pounds in their hands. That that logic that you are that you're providing isn't isn't being isn't being used yes you use it but it's not being used it's it's actually going the other way where they're being completely bogged down and tied down by protocol um and and the re-injury rate as a result is is incredible 
I find that it's frustrating though because it takes away the autonomy of whoever's doing the work. So if I just have a protocol and I just follow that, what's the point in me having any knowledge about how the body works or how the biomechanics work? It just, you're autonomous. You can make your own decisions as long as clinically they are appropriate. So it seems bonkers to me that you'd have to follow something that isn't working or it might not work it might work for a bit but it might not work completely and then like you said you get the re-injury so in an industry that makes millions it just seems so short-sighted I think and the real point of it is is then they go from the protocol as I say to the strength and conditioning coach who pretty much has license to do anything you know like um who pretty much then takes them back to to full sport um there is uh there is a bridge or a step over but it it goes that 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 slide is very steep and it's very quick from from protocol rehabilitation all the way through to um all the way through to sort of back to training again and they're almost the the strength and conditioning coaching world is almost the complete opposite where it there is almost no protocol there's almost no um there's almost no blame put on the uh, on the strength conditioning world. I mean, how many coaches do we see? Uh, we you know we have that famous saying: is if you claim the wins, you have to also claim the injuries. You know, if you want to, as a coach, say I coached that person to that podium, you also have to be I'm the coach that gave that athlete that injury because you know you can't have one without the other. Um, and they're almost like that. All that responsibility and all of that. Oh, you're injured. That's bad luck. Suddenly, then just just comes on to the strength and conditioning coach. Um. Yeah, and I think, well, just going back to Gemma's point on like how you are as a, how you then get to be and respond as a coach, you've got basically, um, there's a, there was a big thing in football years ago, like on how, how they were teaching young players to play nowadays and like flipping how they were teaching them to play, like going from this rigid system of, teaching them to pass, move and work as a team versus stifling the individual flair of your talented players. So they were almost then just saying, well, get the ball, run, dribble, and just go go through that at the, at the best clubs in the country just so you could actually develop the, well, all the psychological aspects of being a better player, um, not scared to make mistakes. And like that, that's effectively what Gemma was, what you pointed out there was as coaches therapists whichever treatment it is like you're held in by potentially stifled by protocols for a lot of it is to do with not being uh so you don't get sued which um unfortunately is a deeper probably more uh, philosophical um podcast but it all comes from that but then ultimately the the player um isn't getting necessarily pushed through the process as much as it well could be getting under pushed rather than over pushed and if they're under prepared for the sport then we know they're going to re-injure anyway um so yeah it's kind of damned if you do damned if you don't so so let's go let's go back through our our injury return to sport protocol and structure here, guys. What what we're saying is you've got the initial injury, 
the initial injury comes with some physiological changes and some psychological changes which need managing and in the best our best advice there is to try and turn them to positivity try and make them feel like they're still in training that they're still working towards something and begin the return to sport protocols accepting in this phase that they might have some kind of um anger and stress and and, and grievances um from there we move into a little bit more of a controlled protocol approach where we are looking for pain reductions we're looking for uh, muscles to be loading and working, measuring joint loading, measuring angles of joints during motion and be a little bit more specific in terms of how many degrees of motion we're allowing at different joints for a functional, for, for a functional standpoint. And then the big one comes then, then the return to sport protocols. We're going to try to have a greater sort of strength and conditioning bring more strength and conditioning into that rehabilitation process. And there in that phase, we're going to be looking at breaking down the elements of the sport um, and actually replicating small areas of the sport and testing the the injury um, in those in those particular areas and, and then receiving feedback from the athletes. Um, Jaws, let's go very specific now to, to football. And then, Gemma, I'm going to come to you after and ask you to be um, – a little bit more specific with perhaps a, a shoulder injury in CrossFit. Um, let's just, could you just explain what are sort of break football down an element of football and what type of tests you'd be doing? So just talk us through that very short process there of they're not playing yet. Just pick one element of football might be, yeah, I'll let you decide that. Um, and then talk through some drills and some ideas and what you'd be looking for and what would constitute a success in that phase and what would mean, what, what would say, okay, I'm not moving for any further than that today or when would you stop the session? I mean, we've got to deal with a um, increased amount of impact. So how much impact can they deal with? Because um, obviously the, the faster they sprint, the higher the impact. Um, the ability to then chop and change direction um what degrees of cutting can they do can they do a full 180 can they yeah just a 45 degree cut increasing like going through the angles of of that then just all out um yeah and then whilst doing that and building in skills um cognitive tests at the same time um so they're responding to um yeah different audio audible or visual cues to to make decisions at the same time um and that that could be even earlier through so even whilst doing like hopping uh hopping drills uh etc um you pretty much just got to go through that that process of well can we deal with straight lines to multiple directions but through all things from lunging through running through hopping through jumping etc how are you managing volume in this key aspect of managing volume is actually just understanding the player um you've got your volume protocols of course of things that you want to work on just like we said before there's um you've got to look at the 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 needs analysis of what movements are involved in the sport but then obviously what energy systems so then it's going well i know i need to be have maximal maximal force for 10 15 seconds in football for example for a sprint or for a jump and a header, a jump and a land. But then also you've got to have that capacity to 
you're running around for 90 minutes covering 10k so there's an endurance aspect to it so in the back of the mind there's the sport um the sports needs and then at the front of the mind is well my athlete needs to tick all those boxes but whilst doing the exercises rather than having ranges within having rep ranges within the idea of the session is there but ultimately being able to see the athlete and going look you're you're just tired now you've you've gone quality's gone like the so that's the dynamic approach of the program in a sense of well how how ready are they based off how good do they look whilst they're doing it rather than oh well they did it they they achieved it anyway so you're using a lot of visual cues there you're looking at them you're seeing the quality of their movement um you're seeing how you know i think it's gonna we all know and it doesn't take a lot to spot a lazy runner or a lazy movement or a lazy step or, and you're looking for sort of infl- instances of lazy mechanics, um, which would ultimately then sort of determine you, okay, now we're stopping. So you'd start with, yeah, some straight line sprint stuff and you gradually just build that, build that up to cutting, jumping, et cetera, et cetera. And then we are watching the athlete for the height they get off the ground, the quality of their jump, the side, the way they step to the side, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as that starts to break down, you'll start to then just sort of uh, break and build them, stop the session there um, and build up gradually from there. Is that right? It's just observation primarily. Yeah, pretty much. Because obviously, I mean, the thing, the thing with football is uncontrollable, right? So effectively by being... By having a session demand, effectively there there is controls. Um, so how do you control the uncontrollable? You've got to be an element of there's an element of unpredictability at the end. But whilst I can still be predictable, be be predictable, train new patterns, good patterns for changing direction, etc. Well, how how well, how quickly do they decelerate the force and change direction? And yeah, you, you can see fatigue, like we talked about in the past with peaking athletes having two athletes in a competition phase they're actually doing the same workout because right now it's it's replication they they can do the same workout they don't need to be working weaknesses and seeing well actually you're you are tired today you're going to stop the session there but the other athlete can keep going like i've done that in games prep um with athletes before um where sessions finish so exactly the same process regardless of injury or injury or um yeah an athlete peaking is the rules apply so Gemma, let's jump over to your example then um crossfit and a shoulder um can you elaborate or go a little bit further or take us down a different path to anything jouse gave us there mate i think if i look specifically so say for example they've had a, ten- a tendinopathy or they've had an acj injury so um a perpendicular joint injury I would and I'm, I'm past this sort of acute phase for example I would be looking at where they lack so if it's things like they're lacking the end of range of motion and they want to do something like a kip and pull up then or, or a pull up of any description or even just hanging on the bar I would again break that movement down so can they hang have they got full range of movement at the shoulder are they sort of deviating anywhere are they moving over to the opposite side have they have they lost any of their thoracic extension what's their power like so I, I would try and break down the movement as much as humanly possible and then build it back up again so um yeah as I said if, if, if they're lacking range then we're working on range if they have 
develop some compensations, which they could have done if this has been ongoing for a period of time. Hopefully with our previous work, it, that won't be the case, but it, it can still happen, obviously. Um, and then I would look at different dynamics of the movement. So um, say for we've gone through, they can hold or hang on a bar um, and then look at the kit. Have they got any problems in terms of core? Have they? Do they struggle with rep schemes so just trying to find the weaknesses really pick holes in it so that you know you're as prepped as humanly possible for something like a crossfit workout so once i'm happy with the specific movement so something like pull up or a kip and pull up i then look at changing the environment a little bit so maybe getting them to do a movement prior so that replicates crossfit a little bit more so whatever you could pick anything really so um burpees into a pull up you would try and make as many variables as possible so that you are making it look as much like their competition floor as humanly possible so yeah i think that that's the route that i would go down yeah okay great so so you both you're both relying heavily on the observation of the movement uh, i really like that that you're you're watching um, and you're adapting and you're reactive to, to what's happening. Um, and I think you alluded to it there, Jim. I think the final phase is then being able to produce these same skills and look the same way under fatigue. And I think re-injuries tend to come under fatigue um, and they tend to come at a, a sort of later stage of of the training training development in terms of they come at the end towards the end of training sessions or in games they don't initially come straight away and so and so yeah your example there where okay I'm we're not we're not I'm happy and satisfied the mechanics look good and I've actually replicated their sport specifically and I've seen success I'm then going to put that success under duress and I'm going to see how the sport looks under pressure, under stress, and that's going to be my final determining factor into as to whether I'm going to allow them back into sport or whether I'm going to keep them in this observational phase uh, or development phase. Um, and I think that um, the the final element of that then is, or the last thing to discuss today is the sort of then the emotional pain responses that that come at the end i think what's what's really interesting is when our observations as coaches um when these uh when these observations as coaches that lead us to okay we're working well the athletes doing what they're doing they're they're moving we're putting them under tension we're putting them under stress and just when we think as coaches it's going well the athlete says it hurts today um, and that's we alluded to. We alluded to in the start is that the the pain and the overcoming of injury and in competition and the letting go. Maybe it's a podcast for itself and the letting go after an injury. For me, is almost the largest part of the injury. Is that many times the bone is healed, the, the structure is healed, they're moving wonderfully. They're in most cases moving better than they were prior to the injury. But just that last five ten percent is being withheld because because of a fear factor and also because of phantom pain or a pain that's there. And interestingly, how many people will feel the pain 
on the way up until they won't have felt it for many weeks. And then it's coming up to their first game or their first race back or whatever. And then the pain starts to come. And so that's the last barrier as coaches we need to overcome is the psychological barrier of return to sport. Yeah, which is big in, well, in all sports. And also, I mean, CrossFit is a little bit easier because effectively you are, so you got injured doing a muscle up, you are, you've probably been doing muscle ups in training. So you've almost passed your test and then what well, you've got to make sure that you've passed the test on is, well, have you done enough volume? Have you done it at high intensity, et cetera? It's an easy controllable, whereas like on the team sports, uh, an ACL, an ACL rupture, like being able to replicate and go, well, what happens if I do that again? Like, are they, are they scared of jumping down and landing on one foot? Like you and you've uh, whilst changing direction with all that going on and been able to get them over over that hurdle of well this is how I did it last time I think deadlifts is a big one in CrossFit like people become scared to deadlift once they've hurt the back deadlifting probably more so than they are a, a muscle up like the the back has its own I don't know yeah everyone's very subconsciously protective of the spine which is obviously yeah usually well everything's important but. Um, probably you do see the biggest psychological um people with back pain seem to hold back pain longer than someone with a shoulder pain or 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 anything like that i think there's loads of research that supports that as well isn't there in terms of back pain and and the fear associated with it but i think one of the things that i try and if I'm happy that everything is sound in terms of the injury, then one of the things that I try and talk about is that pain doesn't always equal tissue harm. And I think that's the difference. Um, and something that people perhaps aren't fully aware of is that pain, it, your experience of pain doesn't necessarily mean to say that there's any tissue damage going on. Now, th- to clarify that, I'm not saying this in your head because it's not pain. You can't, you can't make it up. Um, but, it doesn't always mean that there's something that you need to be concerned about in terms of, of tissue damage. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one thing that I do try and talk about a lot more if I'm happy that everything else is sound. Definitely. Definitely. Um, the, the buy-in from the athlete isn't always easy. Um, but for the most part, um, I mean, I've broken many, many bones um in my body and and for the most part i will i will feel those niggles from time to time um and they'll come back and haunt me and i actually with the knowledge i have now i often find it entertaining i laugh a little bit at myself and perhaps abuse myself slightly or sort of laugh at myself that i'm i'm feeling those pains and and everything else and and they do just disappear they do go away um and yeah, yeah as, as you say, Gemma, interestingly enough, they, they, there is no extra tissue damage. There is no other problems. It is just phantom pain, as we like to call it. But I think what we should do, because um, we've run out of time for this podcast, is actually I, think you, I don't think it would hurt us to do a entire podcast on uh, psychological return to sport um, and actually touch on the fear of movement and going back into sport again. Um, How do you guys feel about that? Sounds good. Happy. Guys, it was uh, a pleasure as always. Um, uh, hope, hope for you listeners at home, you, in, you enjoyed it uh, and managed to get something out of it. I think the key take-homes take from, from my side are to don't be frightened to 
push the athletes don't be frightened to to work with them but at the same time be incredibly diligent in your rehabilitation processes and make sure that you are fully replicating the sports fully replicating the movements within the sport under stress under fatigue before you give them the all clear to go back to the strength and conditioning coach and back to full training um Joust, Gemma, thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Cheers, everyone. Many thanks for listening to this episode of the Reptile Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We welcome any questions you may have on the topics that we discussed today and also any suggestions for future Red Pill training podcasts. Come on.